The blockade is finished. We dare not go against the Jedi. Viceroy, I don't want this stunted slime in my sight again. After 16 years of dormancy, a beloved franchise is reborn from the hands of its creator. But with great power comes great responsibility, and George Lucas, drunk with power, delivers one of the most confusing and unnecessary prequels of all time. Pod racing, midichlorians, and a twerp with a bowl cut highlight the movie that had audiences worldwide saying, What? This is Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And you are listening to the Anti-Monitor Podcast from DoomRocket.com. Listening to Anti Monitor from DoomRocket.com. Knew it. I'm surrounded by assholes. I'm not even going to dignify myself with a response to that. 
That's right. I just checked my watch, and it looks like it's anti-monitor time again. My name is Matt Birdman Fleming, and across the table from me, as always, Jared Jones, editor-in-chief of DoomRocket.com, and our own personal Wookiee. I can't make the sound. Nice. That's pretty good, right? That was like uh, Wookiee cursive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that wasn't bad. It was a, a, a classic, traditional, sacred Wookiee uh, song. So what does that mean? Uh, can you? Well, if you can't infer from the, uh, we are talking Star Wars today. Oh, that's right. That's right. We've got uh, our second new Star Wars movie in as many years, mm -hmm. Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Hopefully it's Rogue Fun. Yeah, hopefully it's not a Rogue Bummer. Yeah. I rebel. I rebel. With that in mind, we decided to take a trip back to 1999 mm -hmm. before we get into the movie that we discussed today. I remember a couple weeks ago that you said you were not necessarily buying all the hype from the uh, Rogue One. We, we posted a newswire on Doom Rocket a while back that talked about uh, the reshoots for Rogue One. And our friend Jason Gibner had written that newswire and he made a really strong case about how this was a positive. That reshoots don't necessarily mean that the movie is fated to fail, right? I agreed with him wholeheartedly, and I got on the side of optimism, and I was looking forward to it. Watching the first trailer, I said, okay, yeah, you've hooked me. It's Star Wars. The second trailer rolled around, third trailer rolled around, all these TV spots rolled around. There's got to be like 40 of them by now, but they all have one thing in common. Aside from the action, of which I have no doubt it will be awesome in the film, the dialogue in this film, it, it's flat. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't inspire in me any feeling other than nostalgia. From what I'm gleaning from it, I haven't read any reviews yet. I'm about to write one of my own very shortly. I'm about to see this movie very shortly. This film is supposed to be a more grown-up version of uh, Star Wars, which you can make. The universe is indeed big enough that you can create a story like this. My concern is, without the, you know, George Lucas wipes for transitions and, like, the sturdy John Williams score, I think uh, Michael Giacano, or Giacano, is doing it, the guy who did uh, Star Trek. Okay. I'm concerned that a PG-13 uh, wartime Star Wars uh, movie might be kind of antithetical to the whole point. Jim, whatever I do, I do it to protect you. So you understand? I understand. My spotty sense is tingling. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I have a good time. Are you looking forward to seeing it? I am looking forward to seeing it. I'm, it's not highest priority for me because That's, I'm going to be working all weekend. Well, of course, but it's a Star Wars. It's a Star Wars. And I so when you... Gotta see it. Yeah, but wouldn't you feel compelled to, like, stop, drop everything and go see this thing as if it were, say, episode one? You know, the trailers look fun. Yeah. But to your point, it hasn't inspired that feeling. Mm -hmm. That feeling that I got. Mm -hmm. I remember. And we talked about it earlier. And to segue, you remember <laughs> the first time you saw the trailer oh. for Star Wars Episode One? I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Wipe them out. All of them. No! Faithful listeners know that Jared and I spent a few years working in a movie theater around this time. Mm -hmm. So we were both 
employed there when this trailer dropped. I remember taking shifts. We would all take turns to go to each theater to watch the trailer again and again, again and again. And again. Yeah. That's right. That was what tra a trailer for a Star Wars movie should inspire a fan yeah. to, to get those feelings going. And Episode 7's trailer did. Absolutely. Oh, it most certainly did. Chewie. For some reason, Rogue One just hasn't quite gotten me there yet. Yeah. I'm, I will see the movie, mm -hmm. as I did every other Star Wars movie yeah. in existence in the theaters. You know what I'm really worried about? What's that? I'm worried that people are going to say, dude, that movie was badass. You, I hate the word badass. Mm -hmm. It's one of my least favorite words. I hate that they, we've taken two words, bad and ass, and made it one word, badass. I don't like it. And if people start applying it to Rogue One, then I will know that my suspicions are confirmed. That's it, true. No, I'm, I'm terrified. So, on one hand, you can be worried about the ramifications of a gritty Star Wars movie. Mm -hmm. But what happens? What happens when you take a movie that is about Darth Vader and turn it into a children's film about bureaucracy? <laughs> you get a mixed bag. Now... It is 2016. In 1999, 17 years have passed, and in those 17 years, which is impossible to think of, by That's the way, right. we are so old, there has been so much shit heaped upon this movie. And we don't mean to pile on. But what we do here at Anti-Monitor is a, an attempt to make sense out of the senseless in cinema. That's it's, right. It's our credo. It's our mantra. It's why we're here. So we're going to make an attempt to see why Star Wars Episode One is the way it is. If you accept it at face value, you will likely take a nap halfway through it. That's true. If you try to engage with it and make sense out of it and try to look into the lore, you will find a rich world. The problem is, is that the more interesting movie is in the background. That's true. So uh, how about we just break this sucker down? Let's let's take a sledgehammer to it right now. All right. I'm going to make like Peter Gabriel and do a sledgehammer. <laughs> All right, so it, we start with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now, back in 1999, opening night, when we got to see this in a midnight showing, you see that those blue letters in a theater. Oh, just before that, though, you get the, the dun, dun, Fox fanfare. Fade in yeah. of that Emerald Lucasfilm logo. Oh, my God. I mean, you'd seen it a dozen times on your TVs at home watching Star Wars on tape, but here it was. Big screen. Star Wars, episode one's finally here, and then, bam. And the theater erupts. I will never forget that feeling. Just the theater exploding. People are just whooping and hollering. You see Star Wars, episode one, and the Phantom, and even though that title was awful, objectively awful, and everyone forgave it, here it comes anyway, in giant yellow letters, and here comes the title scroll, and what do we got? Trade Federations, Blockades, Congress of the Republic, Disputes, oh, and at the bottom, Jedi Knights. And back in the day, in the original trilogy, they used to capitalize the pertinent you know, nouns. Instead, this one is all it's text. standard formats. You're, you're reading a history book at that point. Yeah, pretty much. And then we cut away from it to ambassadors talking about a trade dispute with a trade federation. Even though there are spaceships and there are stars in the background, this is starting to feel like whatever, but you, you forgive it. It's Star Wars. You, you keep going. Can you imagine a child seeing this for the first time and saying, Mommy, what are trade routes? 
And mom's like, look, I didn't go to college for this shit. I don't even know. I'm here to keep you quiet for two and a half hours. Drink your Coke. <laughs> With the whiskey I put in it. <laughs> uh, so, but then, you know, George Lucas peppers in a couple of uh, Star Warsian nods. There's a 3POS protocol droid there. Um, and then, of course, there are the Jedi. We recognize the Jedi because they're dressed just like Obi-Wan Kenobi, yep. which I guess is the default garb for all Jedi. But you you just keep going because whatever. It seems like a Star Wars movie. And then they start talking about the trade negotiation. <sighs> oh, my God. Here we go. That's the first snooze. And we're not even two minutes into this sucker. You get the uh, the two leaders of the Trade Federation. The, the Viceroy ne- Gunray. Newt Gunray mm-hmm. and Bib Blolo or whatever his name is. <laughs> Nemoidians. Yeah. Whose uh, accents are both unflattering and oh my god and uncomplimentary to you don't want <laughs> you don't want people with fake dumb accents explaining bureaucratic war plans yeah especially when like the the racial tones there yeah, that's a bridge too far even for Star Wars I mean it was 1999 we were at the end of the Clinton administration we were all PC at this point so how people weren't ripping chairs out of the theater and hurling him at the screen. I don't know. My lord, is that legal? But, so, the Viceroy and his lackeys, they don't want to talk to the Jedi, which, who would? Because they seem very stiff. He sends, they send the droid out to not poison them with the tea that the droid then gives them. They instead consult with the evil Dark Lord. Darth Sidious. Darth Sidious. Um, And what do they talk about? Negotiations, Negotiations. trade deals, and of course, he's like, the Chancellor should have never brought him into this, killed him immediately, so they put gas in there. Now, the Jedi do what any sane person would do in this situation when they're not poisoned by tea, but instead sat in a room filled with gas, they hold their breath. They hold their breath. (laughs) And of course, they They can hold their noses for a very long time. We later find out that they have rebreathers in their utility belts because they're Batman. Mm -hmm. And then the robot soldiers say, "Uh uh-oh. And literally five minutes into the movie, we got lightsabers. That's all right. Perish forbid. You forget this was a Star Wars movie. And then Liam Neeson does that thing with the door where he jams the lightsaber in the door and they're like, this is impossible. And he's like, oh yeah, no, it's not. And the music swells and it seems awesome. And you think it's awesome for a minute. And then these like rolling droids come in. They're called droidicas and they got twin turbo lasers and like blaster shields. Shields. And they look fucked up. They are awesome. So when these things roll in, that should be the end of the movie. But instead, the Jedi Hall adds to the hangar bay. They use super speed, which is interesting because they never use it again. Because there's a moment in the movie where you think super speed might come in handy, and they do not use it. That's we'll true. touch on that later. Just hang, put that in the background for yeah, you. Keep that in your back pocket. Yeah. So uh, they find out that the Trade Federation plans to invade the capital of Naboo, and they stow away down to Naboo. Obi-Wan takes this moment to say a funny. You were right about one thing, Master. The negotiations were short. You remember his funny? I love I, I love Ewan McGregor, but I don't know what passes for comedy in the mind of George Lucas, other than stepping in poodoo. He is an interesting man. You you watch interviews with him, and you can tell that his success has certainly affected him. But you can also tell, like when you see old footage of him, like making you know THX eleven thirty eight or uh, yeah, Star Wars or Star Wars. You can tell he was a little stiff. It came time for Coppola, Scorsese, Lucas, and Spielberg to go have that Coke party. George Lucas was at the payphone calling his Coming. mother. You know, <laughs> there, there was something up with George Lucas. So the, that, that little Obi-Wan's first yuck falls flat, as all the jokes in this movie will, which is a bad sign. Bad, bad sign. Let's just call that whole sequence red flag number one. <laughs> by the way, quick fun fact. Mm-hmm. Newt Gunray, voiced by, of all people, Tom Kenny. Tom Kenny. The voice of uh, SpongeBob uh, SquarePants. How does he sleep at night? 
uh, on a pile of money. A bed <laughs> literally made only of money. Because he's SpongeBob, and that used to be a thing. That's true. Well, we go down to Naboo and Queen Amidala, who is... Well, actually, no, we see Queen Amidala up on the Trade Federation ship. And she... You want to talk about racist here? She's in, like, full yellow face. Oh, she is just kabukied out the whole time. Oh, it's a sight to see. And uh, she's all like, nuh uh. And she talks to a hologram of Senator Palpatine, who uh, looks conspicuously a lot like that Darth. Dark Lord of the Sith, the Nemodians were just talking to. That's weird. Palpatine, that's a funny uh, family name. Yeah. That seems familiar from... Uh, hmm. It's fine. That's weird. So yeah, we get nice enough. more static about negotiations and communications, and uh, she says something along the lines of, I will not condone a course of action that will lead us to war while I wear this funny hat. <laughs> and then uh, the Trade Federation brings their droid army down to the surface. We automatically miss the stormtroopers. Uh, here comes Jar Jar. Jar Jar Binks. Now, no. we could dedicate a whole like hour to Jar Jar Binks, but we will not. We are here to assess, to analyze. So let's analyze Jar Jar for a moment. Jar Jar is a placeholder for 3PO and R2-D2. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We, but we have R2-D2 and we have 3PO. So what is the purpose of Jar Jar Binks? You know, George Lucas spent all these years not making Star Wars movies under the guise of technology isn't there. Mm-hmm. The visual effects aren't there. Mm-hmm. Well, it is 17 years later that it wasn't there then <laughs> when it comes to... And they went all out with this guy. They had a dude in a suit wearing a headpiece. Ahmed Best. A man who has also made a, quite a living in voice acting. Yeah. Because he never wanted to show his face again after this. Wow. But uh, you remember that uh, that movie, The Amazing Bulk? Yes. That's what it felt like in by today's standards, wow. watching the movement of Jar Jar Binks at times. It felt like someone made this in the MS paint of CGI. Now, the rendering probably wasn't all the way there, and there are certainly sequences where the CGI feels a little sloppy. I mean, it's not special edition sloppy. It doesn't look that bad or that glaring, but it is there. And Jar Jar Binks, when he's standing next to, say, Liam Neeson, who's about as real a motherfucker can get in this movie. That's true. uh, it definitely causes a visual discord. So he's there for the comic relief. He's there for children to watch the film and go, oh, I like him. Mom, buy me those toys. Yeah. And yet when, I mean, I was in high school, I think, what, 99, sophomore, junior in high school. I don't recall too many people younger than me getting hyped on Jar Jar Binks. I remember him being on the cover of Rolling Stone, and that was pretty much the extent of it. And then we saw the movie, and... The hate began, and the internet was not what it was today. Had it been, holy shit, the shitstorm would have. Uh, it it would have been. It would have been a shit deluge. Absolutely, and it was already a pretty bad shitstorm for mm-hmm. early internet. Oh, mooey, mooey, mooey. Oh. <laughs> hey, you know what? At least he steps in Dookie, yeah, and everybody least. loves a good crap joke. Well, there's at least four in this movie. I counted. Mm-hmm. So four crap jokes, all courtesy of Jar Jar Binks. It's embarrassing. So that's why he's there. Yeah, he gets to he gets to say mm-hmm. "pu" and yeah. he smells a fart, and then he galvanizes the Gunkin army to join Queen Amidala, and you know that's pretty much his function in the film, and it's fine because he goes away immediately in episode two. A uh, film we'll probably explore later on, probably for the next episode eight. That's probably <laughs> then we're right. gonna run out of Star Wars movies. Jar Jar says he can help uh, Qui Gon because he saved his life because the uh, Trade Federation is. Booming in, and Jar Jar, who's been banished from the Gungan City, is just standing right in the middle of the fray. Qui-Gon's like, you get out of here, and he's like, I'm going to straddle you anyway, Mui Mui. And uh, he says, I owe you a life debt. 
Obi-Wan's like, what's this? We found a local. They hop into the water. Uh, Jar Jar takes him to the Gungan City, where we meet Boss Nass. Now, Boss Nass, I liked Boss Nass when I saw the movie originally, and I liked the Gungan City. It, visually, it was the first thing in the film that really caught my eye. I was like, ooh, I felt a little sense of wonder. And then later when they're using the uh, the bongo, the unabongo, unabongo. to uh, swim through the planet core, which seems to happen really quickly. Seems to me like the planet core might be in the center of the planet. Anyway, so the giant fish eats the gianter fish, or the other way around. Yeah. And then Liam Neeson says, there's always a bigger fish. Even though that stupid shit was going on, being underwater felt like I was watching a Star Wars movie to me when I was younger. I don't know why it did. It just it, did. No, it felt it felt like when the uh, Millennium Falcon is flying through an asteroid and you get yeah. the big snake monster thing. With a lot less stakes attached to it, but yes, absolutely. It had the exact same visceral feel to it, and I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, of course, Boss Nass does, uh, succumbs to uh, Liam Neeson's Jedi mind trick, the first time we ever see it, technically, chrono- which Chronologically, is a yeah. pretty cool thing to do, at which point George Lucas paints up Kira Knightley and tries to tell me that it's Natalie Portman, which, shit. Uh, yeah. Well, Natalie Portman <laughs> yeah. is... Just in the background, yep. being Natalie Portman. So pay no attention to the brilliant young ingenue you saw in uh, Luc Besson's The Professional, who's standing right over there, who you just saw in Kabuki makeup not two minutes ago. This person, Kira Knightley, that you've never heard of is now Queen Amidala. Yeah, they, they think that you can just paint up another skinny white girl. and It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. It's close enough. It's serviceable. Mm-hmm. And it's like a fun fact for Kira Knightley to have been in this movie. Yeah. So, you know, Rose Byrne was uh, later... A similar role in episode two. That's true. Okay. Uh, Queen Amidala and her people are taken by the droids, so the Jedi jump in. Liam Neeson does that thing with his lightsaber in his holster, like, like he's a cowboy. Yeah, he's which, a cowboy. Which space was, cowboy. Yeah, he's, he is a space cowboy. The Jedi are space cowboys. I went on a ta- uh, tangent about this on Casual Wednesdays uh, yesterday. I will not go on again, but... Maybe one day uh, when we're actually talking about maybe for Return of the Jedi. That's true. That's true. All right. Uh, so they go to another hangar. There's like five hangar scenes in this movie. There are a lot of hangars. So many. Uh, so Obi-Wan does some Jedi shit and absconds with the queen, her handmaiden, handmaidens, a small crew of security, and R2-D2. So R2-D2 was a, a Naboo astro droid, which is fine. That's fine. I will accept that because then R2-D2 is now permanently a part of the lore in many contrived ways, but he's there. Yeah. You accept it because it's Star Wars. The ship that they uh, escape in is flown by none other than Del Preston from Wayne's World 2. Which rules. And Danny from With it, Nail and I, which is really awesome. But I had to beat them to death with their own shoes. The Naboo ship is leaking fuel, so they decide to land on Tatooine, which means that Naboo is somewhere near the Outer Rim. That makes sense. It has although, to. Although, at one point, when after they mentioned that they're low on fuel... Mm-hmm. They still seem to be flying for a while. They do. They go on for quite a bit. I mean, they're going from one planet. Or they're, no, they're going from one system to another. Because I don't recall seeing two suns in Naboo. I don't. Absolutely not. Yeah, so they go to another system. So they went a distance. They just couldn't go the distance. And if Tatooine is in the outer rim and Coruscant's closer to the center of the gap, I don't. They, they went the, the wrong direction to evade the... Mm-hmm. Uh, blockade instead of uh, having the fuel to go the long route back around to get to coruscant okay i get you there was no planning this was an unplanned escape mission Mm -hmm. that makes sense okay thank you that that's been bothering me for 17 years (laughs) no problem (laughs) it it actually only took me 17 years to figure it out so uh 
they decide to uh, head over to Tatooine. Darth Sidious gets really pissed at the Trade Federation for letting him, let him go. So he's all like, you know what? Here's my damn apprentice. Isn't he terrifying? Which he Hell is. yeah. Yes, he is. We he will- is absolutely the best looking Sith uh, ever to appear in the cinematic oeuvre. S- uh, aside from Darth Vader, of course. Of course, aside from Darth Vader. Yeah. But, but at the same time, mm-hmm. Darth Maul looks bad. So what happens is, is that the the ship did escape them, but not not without a reasonable cost. They lost a few asteroids, but R two D two did save the day. And for his uh, trouble, Queen Amidala gets to give him a bath. Yep. <laughs> because the decoy is like, hey, you know how you make me be your decoy? Well, you gotta clean the asteroid. I brought this up uh, during the movie. Mm-hmm. The decoy has some nerve. Like she, oh, is, she's got a cheek. She's really playing up the fact that, like, well, if I have to pretend to be the, <laughs> the queen, I'm gonna make the queen my bitch. Get a toothbrush and grab a hand uh, a bar of soap and go clean that asteroid. Scrub, and, scrub this droid. What is his number? R two D two. Scrub him. I'd like to think that off camera, like she actually came in and checked on the progress. How is the droid coming along? Now, now, that is not to my liking. You will have to redo this whole thing. <laughs> like I. Padme's all like this. You, you're fired so much. I hope someone blasts you. So at this point, the scene only exists so we can dwell on R two D two for a minute. Because Liam Neeson, all that happens afterwards, like, hey, by the way, we're going to Tatooine. You have to trust me, and and that could have happened off screen. Didn't need to happen. So they land. They need a new hyperdrive. So Liam Neeson's like, I've got. 20,000 Republic credits, we'll just go buy some in this Outer Rim territory where people are not going to take your Republic shit. They might shoot you and take it and spend it elsewhere, but they're not going to take it from they're you. Not gonna, yeah. From your hand. They'll take it from your dead body, but whatever. So, But he takes Jar Jar, I guess, for cover and R2 for cover, and then the Queen's all like, oh, you have to take me, or I mean, my decoy, and, he's, and Liam Neeson's all like, uh... Enough orders from the queen. For the, you could tell he's already had it with her shit. He's like, I'm yeah. trying to help you. Just stay out of my business. Um, and then Jar Jar steps in shit. Yep. At which point we meet Watto, uh, who's a slave owner and a uh, junk dealer. A junk dealer, slave owner. What order does that go in? Are you a know. slave dealer or a junk owner? or? It's, uh, well, he owns the junk and the slaves, mm-hmm. but he doesn't deal the slaves. But he did sell Shmi. In between episodes one and two. Well, you know, he was hard up on money because of uh, everything he lost. Well, it's war. Yeah, exactly. It's not star peace times. Yeah, yeah, they're having a star recession. That's right. So uh, Liam Neeson and Watto have wonderful chemistry, by the way. Liam Neeson has more chemistry with Watto than literally any other character in this film, and I love it. It's amazing. I love it. Watto is actually kind of... A uh, compelling uh, sub-villain. In a way. You know, he's he's very uh, smarmy. You want to hate him. Also, another uh, example of the movie's overt uh, racial stereotypes. Like, oh, oh my God. So bad. It's... I remember seeing it for the first time and being like, oh, no, they really... Yes, they did. George, come on. You know that that's not cool. I'm a billionaire, so I can get away with anything. <laughs> Um, at which point we meet the reason why we're all here, young Anakin Skywalker, who's a child for no, literally zero reason. No reason whatsoever is he a child. And people have tried to explain this to me to like, uh, it's to illustrate the innocence that he lost. Bullshit. Bullshit. There were a litany of ways to uh, establish that in three films. You didn't need to have the first one where he's an annoying kid. Are you an angel? What? And there's... Uh, George Lucas hate you watch like the behind the scenes thing he was really struggling with Jake Lloyd so it's like and 
he broke the cardinal rule of filmmaking. Never work with children or animals because they're just going to make you want to cut yourself. And it doesn't make sense. Anakin Skywalker was discovered late and seemed to be too old for training. Yeah. Eight years old is not that old. I know. Why couldn't you found him as a 12-year-old? Because they later established in episode, what, two or three or whatever, that younglings have to be of an age, and they're little cherubic things at like three or four or five. And Precious. But they know about people breaking into uh, the Jedi archives or whatever. Well, I don't care. It doesn't make any sense. It literally doesn't. It, just to have kid toys. That's all that's there for. That's it. So Anakin uses this opportunity throughout this entire sequence to let us know that he's a pilot. He is a skilled mechanic. He built C-3PO, which I don't buy for a second. It, it's not, it doesn't even come back to pay off in the original trilogy. Like, 3PO feels like this weird connection to Vader or, or anything at all. It, it just doesn't matter. The, they just want... It's, it's just, a lapse in logic. Yeah, and it's literally just another toy. Mm -hmm. And another point of nostalgia that George Lucas can throw in there. Like, hey guys, look what I did for you. I mm -hmm. got you this. Yeah. This thing you didn't ask for. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Liam Neeson's broke ass can't afford a hyperdrive, so they putz around town. Jar Jar tries to steal food because he doesn't have enough whoopee whoopee. And so uh, this guy <laughs> named Sebulba almost rolls over him, but Anakin somehow intimidates the scary, spindly alien thing. Turns out that they're pod racing rivals. Uh, a dust storm rolls in. Anakin's like, come in over to my house. Hey, mom, look at all these people I brought in to feed, even though we are ridiculously poor. And Shmi's all like, yeah, come on in. I can feed you with my slave's rations. Exactly. So uh, Liam Neeson has dinner uh, with Anakin and his family and all these people. And he touches Jar Jar's tongue and does not wipe his hands before he starts eating again. Gross. Which is, oh my god. But it, it has this really cool exchange. Like, uh, Liam Neeson actually gets to have like a couple lines of dialogue where he, like, he feels wistful about being a Jedi. You're a Jedi Knight, aren't you? What makes you think that? I saw your laser sword. Only Jedis carry that kind of weapon. Perhaps I killed a Jedi and took it from him. I don't think so. No one can kill a Jedi. I wish that were so. Liam Neeson's like, hey, uh, Shmi, your son's really wizard. And Shmi's like, thanks. I don't know how it happened. Turns out Anakin's a virgin birth because why the hell not? Um, we are not talking about midi-chlorians. I don't give a shit. We don't have enough air time for it. We're just not. Is that okay? That's totally fine. Just know that basically she got pregnant by space ghosts. Uh, a lot of people uh, submit that Palpatine used the midi-chlorians to inspire the birth. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Darth Maul at this point arrives in his duckbill ship. <laughs> um, on Tatooine uh, We watched the pod race Which is still awesome It is still awesome The pod race aged very well It's, it's really thrilling In a Ben-Hur sort of way mm -hmm. And we watched the extended version of it Yeah It was and really weird It was the only uh, extended part of this movie That didn't feel awful mm -hmm. Yeah, we ended up kind of watching The special edition of episode one Which, mm, whatever If anything Episode one really is the last time George Lucas really tried to make a film You know, interesting, intriguing uh, dynamic, and the pod race is definitely a big indicator of that. I agree. Again, it's like poetry, so that they rhyme. Mm -hmm. Every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. Hopefully it'll work. Uh, let's take a break from this for a moment. Oh, please. I want to <laughs> test your knowledge of the movie that we literally just watched. Oh? And I have with me an official StarWars.com How Well Do You Know the Phantom Menace quiz. Oh. Can't wait. Lay it on me. I'm going to fail miserably. Number one. Mm. What is the first word 
in the opening crawl? Is it violence, war, the, or turmoil? The. That's wrong. Mm. Uh, I believe it was, uh, what was the last one I said? Was turmoil. It it? <laughs> turmoil. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Trade Federation set up a blockade in which planet? Naboo. Yeah, that's the gimme for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Why did Obi-Wan suggest landing the Naboo Royal Starship on Tatooine? Well, come on, it's because they didn't have a hyperdrive. Or the fuel was leaking. Or one of those two things. It was free from the Trade Federation. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, this quiz is kind of whack. Mm. On which planet, uh, on the moons of which planet does Anakin say angels live? Oh, Diego. Got that right. Yeah. How does Queen Amidala convince Boss Nass and the Gungans to help the Naboo? By revealing her true self, no longer hiding behind a decoy. Okay. And um, also she gets on her knees and begs. That's the answer. She begs for help. <laughs> what is the name of the N1 starfighter pilots in the Battle of Naboo? I can give you all four squadrons if you'd like. Bravo. Bravo, leader. Uh, yeah. Nailed it. Yeah, got it. What are the only words spoken by Chancellor Palpatine to Anakin Skywalker? We will watch your career with great interest before he flicks his tongue. That's it. Right. He does look kind of like a snake, not quite like a Snoke. A little bit. So let's get back into the second half of this film. As we've established, Anakin Skywalker has won the pod race. I, I think we left out that Liam Neeson and Watto made a kind of a weird gamble that got way more complicated than it needed to be. Absolutely. And then Liam Neeson did that little swagger, like wink thing at the camera, which was <laughs> awesome. I'm gonna find a, I'm gonna make a gif of that. I'm taking the initiative. That is my gift. So Liam Neeson tells Anakin he's no longer a slave, but Shmi, uh, she could stay there. Liam Neeson takes Anakin on to become a Jedi, which yippee. But wait, what about mom? And Mom, who is basically uh, the person who let loose Space Hitler into the <laughs> galaxy, but... Uh, we have to care about Space Hitler's mom. Very briefly. And then George Lucas makes us care about her again in episode two, and it's like, come on! That's where the tragedy is, a Shmi Skywalker. She grew up, was a slave, gave birth to the worst human being ever conceived, and then died. That's it. That's it. That's her story. That could have been much better, mm -hmm. fleshed out much better in the yeah. prequels. Tried to explain that to the five-year-old you just brought to Star Wars. <laughs> anyway, so they have a tearful farewell with Jake Lloyd's face morphed in CGI, so he actually looks like he's about to cry. I know they did it. I know I read it somewhere. But then, boom, here comes Darth Maul. Now let's talk about Darth Maul for a second. Because Absolutely. in 90s terms, if we may use those, Darth Maul is ostensibly a can of Surge, a Matrix trench coat, and Marky Mark in fear. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, plus devil horns. Plus devil horns, because he's sick. Yeah, he's super sick. Ray Park. I was obsessed with that guy back in 99. I was like, this guy can do anything. And when he ended up in uh, X-Men. Yeah, and as then he, Toad. Yeah, as Toad. I mean, I, I forgave that he was Toad, but when he beat up Storm and then did that flippy thing with a stick, and then he looks at the camera and winks, this is how I knew Brian Singer was truly a hack. Yeah. Because he snuck in a Darth Maul Easter egg into an X-Men movie. I learned to love Ray Park a little less, because he's a ham. He's a bit of a ham. He's not a great actor. He is a, yeah. a great physical performer. Absolutely. And the character of Darth Maul ostensibly gets replaced by an old man. Yeah, which is a real shame because Darth Maul could have been a real big heavy for the trilogy and they just squandered him. Uh, I think Dave Filoni, who uh, 
was the showrunner for the Clone Wars and later Rebels, really saw the worth in him because he, despite what happens, spoilers to Darth Maul later in this film, they reinserted him as kind of a foil for Obi-Wan and Anakin in the Clone Wars. Uh, which is which is good because great. yeah you can't create this great looking yeah. character conceptually with, perfect with the double lightsaber the coolest lightsaber anyone had ever seen instantly iconic and you kill him in the first movie only, and then that's it and and you replace him with Christopher Lee Christopher mm-hmm. Lee is mm-hmm. awesome yeah Christopher Lee is not how are you gonna make an old man sidekick an older man see that's the thing I never got about Darth Tyrannus which is you know. Count Dooku is like was Palpatine keeping Dooku in the wings somewhere? It's like let's see how this Maul kid works out, and if he goes, then we'll bring you for the sequel. I have a backup plan, and he's an old man. Like where's this? And he's older than Maul, considerably older. I think I don't know how Maul's people age, but he looks like he's young. And that's virile. And that's something we'll be able to go more in depth with when we finally cover Attack yeah, of the Clones. Absolutely. So, so what happens next, Jared? So what happens? Uh, Liam Neeson gets Anakin on board Queen Amidala's ship, and they book it straight to Crescent. Uh, Cor- Coruscant. Croissant. Croissant. Uh, Obi Wan meets Anakin Skywalker, which is supposed to be a big <gasps> moment for the audience, but Anakin's a fucking kid, so it doesn't work. Uh, Viceroy Gunroy has a damn walking chair, and he tucks uh, Amidala's advisor. Away the into governor, yeah. yeah or whatever, uh, tucks him away and says, "Droids, go and, and attack the Gungans because we're going to take over this entire planet." I suppose. How are they going to keep this quiet from the Senate? I don't understand. That's the probably the biggest thing I don't understand mm-hmm. about this plot, if mm-hmm. you will. Is first of all, you don't sign a treaty to start a war. Yeah, you just you have war and you st- sign a treaty to end a war. Right. And when you go to typically. If you go to a governmental body and you say, these motherfuckers over here have invaded us, what you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. You don't say, let's form a committee to see if what you're saying is true. Instead of sending a ship over there, you just sent two ambassadors over there who have yet to return. Oh, wait, they did return with the queen who is now saying we are under attack. Your ambassadors that you sent, you, sir, Chancellor Terrence Stamp. The point is conceded. Will you defer your motion to allow a commission to explore the validity of your accusations? Okay, so we later find out that Chancellor Terrence Stamp is kind of a, a, a toy, a pawn within the great political schemes of Palpatine. Um, and he gets scuttled away rather quickly. But the whole Trade Federation getting away with this wholesale until this moment when uh, Terrence Stamp is then broomed. Tragically, I've never seen such a horrible use of Terrence Stamp in my no, life. He he just sits down mm-hmm. and like kind of closes his yeah. eyes and thinks about the paycheck that he's getting for his five minutes oh, of work. You got you got paid for that because they made action figures. I had a Chancellor Valorum action figure. That's insane. I had it. Queen Amidala is like, uh, I wasn't elected to watch these people suffer and die while I wear this funny hat, and I pull a vote for no confidence, which is good for Palpatine, because he's been doing this Machiavellian shit on her for the whole sequence of Coruscant. The point... Excuse me, Chancellor. Into the bureaucrats, the true rulers of the Republic, and on the payroll of the Trade Federation, I might add. This is where Chancellor Valorum's strength will disappear. Meanwhile, with the Jedi, we go over to the Jedi Temple, where we see Master Yoda, and then other such notable luminaries as Kaya Dimondai and the motherfucking Mace Windu. They talk about the prophecy, the one who will bring balance to the Force, and then we start falling asleep again because we are now officially overcomplicating of, we're complicating the lore. 
and it's unnecessary. With the midichlorians and the prophecy, Darth Vader all of a sudden isn't a creature of circumstance. He's he's supposed to be there. This whole thing was supposed to happen all along, and that always brings the story down. This is the one thing I want to say about midichlorians. Mm. The worst thing that can happen happens in this, yeah. where Obi-Wan Kenobi says to qui Gunjin earlier in the movie when analyzing his blo- uh, Anakin's blood, <laughs> he has more midichlorians than even Master Yoda. And it's like, damn, how are you going to put Master Yoda's midichlorian count on blast like that? Yeah, exactly. Like, do Jedi go around, like, instead of having <laughs> Check your dick stats, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Please, whatever, you only got... 600 midichlorians, <laughs> bitch. I, I'm a thousand. Jedi is supposed to be above that, and yet we're supposed to chart how powerful they are by their midichlorian cat? Come on. Come that on. doesn't sound like something space monk cowboys would do. Exactly. And if he had a bigger midichlorian count than Master Yoda, then maybe there's something wrong with this kid. Maybe he's got force cancer or something. <laughs> they don't even bother to check. It's they just, don't. Oh, he's all powerful, which is fine. So then Yoda's just like, uh, I don't think so, guys. I sense way too much fear in this kid, and you know what fear leads to? The dark side. And we got a Sith Lord running around. If it's truly a Sith Lord, then we got a bigger problem than this kid. Keep your eye on the prize. But Qui-Gon Jinn's like, oh, there's something about this kid, and I'm Liam Neeson, and I was Oscar Schindler once, so people are going to really be invested on my opinions and feelings. And so we use him as the portal through which Anakin Skywalker must walk to become an actual character in this movie. So fine, now he's gonna be a Jedi eventually, but not yet. He is not a Jedi yet, because the, uh, the Council says no. Amidala talks to Palpatine, and he's all like, I'm going to be Chancellor, which isn't suspicious at all. Not um, at all. Amidala says she's going back to Naboo, and Palpatine protests like Willy Wonka did <laughs> in uh, Charlie Chocolate Factory. He's like, no, stop, don't, murder, don't go back. That's what they That's want. That's dangerous. That's- Liam Neeson insists on training Anakin. He's like, you guys can do whatever you want with Obi-Wan. I'm done with that chump. He knows what he's doing, even though in the beginning of the film, he's like, you still got much to learn. Be mindful of the living force, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, he calls him out about that. He's still got a lot to learn about the living force. It's but, like, damn, motherfucker, how are you going to tell my boss that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because Yoda is the Jedi boss. Yeah. And he's like, no, I want this kid for some really undefined reason. So here's my Padawan who's not done with his training. And yet Obi-Wan like pipes up and it's this one moment of hubris. And he goes, I am ready to face the trials. And it's like, oh, word? Because you've been sitting in a ship for the entire movie. We have yet to see how ready you are. Young Jedi. Yeah, you still got a tiny-ass ponytail. So then this movie gets, like, it all coalesces into this giant war. The War of Naboo, which is, you know, ground level. Gungans are galvanized by Queen Amidala, who gets on her knees and begs Boss Nass to let him use his army. These guys who have been beefing for God knows how long. Gungans don't even have representation in the Senate, so the Naboo have been probably holding them down forever. And Jar Jar's the first, you know... Crossover. Uh, crossover. The first person to transcend this dichotomy. And yet, Boss is like, oh, okay. Oh, you don't think you're better than us? Yeah. <laughs> How the hell were the droids going to get down there anyway, in the water? They're droids! Yeah, exactly. That makes no sense. You ever put a toaster in a bathtub? It's, it doesn't work out for the toaster. That's true. Spoilers. Or the bathtub. Yeah. Well, or, or you. A big ground war between the Gungans and the, uh, the droids. There's an... Uh, a Star War with uh, the Bravo team going up there to blast out the trade control ship, which has heavy shields and heavy artillery that Anakin Skywalker, in a very stupid and convoluted way, just manages to get up there. And, you know, he... Because he's a baby, and they're like, 
that ship's being driven by a baby. We don't need to worry about that. <laughs> exactly. And he says early in the movie, he's like, I'm a pilot. And you're like, you're a pilot? You're a baby. Exactly. But because he said it in the movie means it's true. Because once he gets the autopilot turned off, which I loved it when you said that, he's like, yeah, because all ships start off with autopilot. Yeah. I'll try spinning. That's a good trick. <laughs> you got Anakin up there blasting away and just kind of buffooning his way to victory, just like Jar Jar is on the floor. And meanwhile, we have a more personal battle between Amidala and the security guard of Naboo against the Viceroys. And then, of course, Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, Darth Maul in probably the sweetest lightsaber fight we ever saw, which ruined lightsabers forever. Yeah, absolutely. Because then after that, everything had to be a lightsaber fight. And the lightsaber fights had to get more and more complicated. The super jumps and the super oh, flips, yeah. and like we saw earlier in the movie, the super running. Yeah, but they didn't do the super running this time, did they? No, and they sure could have used that this time. Obi-Wan gets separated by Qui-Gon and Maul by these like uh, force field doorways, which I guess they're in the core room of the Naboo Palace? Yeah, like the uh, the nuclear reactor that keeps the city... The lights on? Lights on? I didn't have, see any lights in the city either. They seem like a pretty benevolent society. They don't have solar power or wind power. Seems like they would be the type that would. Seems like it. Anyway, so Obi-Wan is separated by them, and if he and he runs, too, to catch up because he knows his master's in trouble. But he does not feel compelled to use this force jump, which is yet another lapse in the film's judgment. Mm -hmm. It breaks its own rules. So Obi-Wan is caught behind the force field. Qui-Gon and Darth Maul have it out. Darth Maul kills Qui-Gon so we can actually feel like something of consequence occurred in the film because everything else happens without consequence. Naboo goes right back to where it was. They're buddies with the Gungans, which never gets talked about again in the history of Star Wars with the exception of Jar Jar Binks, Senator... For Naboo. For Naboo. And that's it. Excuse me. And it's not Senator for Gungans. It's the Senator of Naboo. And that's it. That's the only thing of consequence beyond Qui-Gon dying that needed to happen in this film, aside from introducing Anakin Skywalker, which could have been done just as easily in Episode 2. Wow. E episode 2 should have been Episode 1, and Episode 2 should have been a lot better. It's all Obi-Wan's fault. But <laughs> holy cow, we could go on forever and ever and ever on that. That's yeah. my biggest problem with this movie, and with the prequels in general, mm -hmm. is that uh, it lacks focus. It's schizophrenic. Yeah. Lo and behold, though, The Phantom Menace turned out to be maybe... Best of the three in a I, lot of ways. I do enjoy. I love watching Phantom Menace because as convoluted and unnecessary as it is, it makes far more sense emotionally because it has none. It has no emotions. It has emotions with quotation marks. Yeah. But in episode two and episode three, we're supposed to be invested in the uh, the romance of Anakin and Amidala, which makes no sense with the context of this film. Exactly. The entire time I'm watching this movie, every interaction between a woman. <laughs> A woman who is queen of a planet. An elected queen, so oh, she's competent, too. Yeah. The elected queen of a planet and this eight-year-old boy who she's going to have things with in ten years. They lay it on thick. She's like, I, have, I, I care for you. And he's like, I care for you, too, only... It's your mother, isn't it? Like, that's almost like the uh, conversation that Anakin and Amidala have on the couch when... Uh, Amidala's wearing that bustier mm -hmm. in episode two. Like that, this is almost the exact same conversation. It's like, I care for you. Well, I guess I care for you, but you're a Jedi. It's like, yeah, but you know, <laughs> it's the same conversation. Just their reasons are shifted. That's right. And then there he is. He's eight years old and he gets mm -hmm. his first boner. And then that's it. That's it. That's the end of the universe. He gives her that necklace uh, uh, made out of uh, which poor snippet. Uh, uh, did I pronounce that right? I, Doesn't who knows? Matter. The language of this movie mm -hmm. makes no sense. You give this little kid 
all of his dialogue for half the movie is a fake language. He has yeah. to speak hut with flying stereotype. Right. Poor Jake Lloyd. I don't feel sorry for him because he could have been anything after this. Literally anything. I blame his parents. Mm-hmm. Jake Lloyd, if you're listening to this, we'll pour one out for you, buddy. Keep your head up. It wasn't my fault. Really. Sebulba Flashmith is Vince. And that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Anti-Monitor. Look us up on iTunes. Rate and subscribe if you haven't already. And if we like your review, if it's five stars enough anyway, we'll read it here on the podcast. Amen. And Bertie will say it in his sweet, dulcet tones. That's true. Uh, look us up on Twitter in the meantime. I'm at Jared Jones underscore Bertie. Where can they find you? I am at Bird Money on all platforms. So until Star Wars Episode Ten, this time no Vader, we promise. I remain Jared, that's Bertie over there, and from the rest of us here at DoomRocket.com. Are you an angel? What? <laughs>